welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Michael Borofsky from University of Minnesota talking about surgical management of BPH. So Mike Borofsky here. I'm a faculty at the University of Minnesota. I want to thank you all for logging in and, um, you know, taking a part and being an advocate for your own education. Um, I'm hopeful over the next 45 minutes or so, we can talk about surgical management of BPH. And I'm going to go based on the AUA guidelines, knowing that there is a lot to discuss. Honestly, this could be probably an entire day's worth of lectures. So we'll try to mainly focus on kind of the introduction of the concept, some of the the main studies that are out there, and also um, leave some time for questions at the end. Before I start, I want to thank UCSF and I want to thank uh, Lindsay Hampson in particular for organizing what I think is just an amazing effort. Um, And with that being said, um, let's go. Um, These are my disclosures and financial conflicts of interest. Uh, First, I'll I'll tell you, I'm I'm broadcasting this from um, my bedroom right now. I have three little children downstairs and at any point if one of them interrupts, I apologize in advance. So let's talk about BPH. Um, Little quick overview, and I think this will be covered in a later lecture uh, to some degree, but BPH, what is it? It's a proliferation of the prostatic transition zone tissue. And we're always talking about the transition zone here. And it's not just adenoma, we always call it adenoma, but BPH itself is made of glandular elements, it has smooth muscle elements, and it has a connective tissue component. Um, 60% of men by the age of 60 will have some evidence, histologic evidence of BPH, and 80% of men by age 80. Doesn't necessarily mean that 80% of men will have symptoms, but histologically, um, this is a very common, um, something to expect as people age. And 90% of men will report at least some type of lower urinary tract symptom related to BPH between the ages of 45 and 80. So very common condition that we're all gonna see as urologists. What's the current state of surgical therapy? Well, it's evolved. So if you, if I did this lecture probably 30 years ago, we took a very hammer and nail approach to things. If you had a small or medium-sized prostate, you generally got a terp. And if you had a large prostate, you may have gotten a simple prostatectomy. And really over the years, particularly now, we can't do this. We can't offer our patients this hammer nail approach. Um, we have to offer them the menu. Let me just minimize my screen here for a moment. So what does that mean? So in the AUA guidelines nowadays, there's this sentence, in all instances, patients should be provided with the risk benefit profile for all treatment options in light of their circumstances to allow them to make informed decisions regarding their treatment plans. And I think this is really important and this is a really difficult discussion to have because it takes a lot of time to educate people about the various options, the risk benefit profile of what's out there, but it is really important. Patients have so much to learn and and they, they should be advocates in their own decision out there. So we have guidelines from the AUA. These are from 2018, although they were updated last year um, in 2019. Um, a series of experts went through and they assigned you know, recommendations based on um, high, moderate, or low degrees of evidence. Um, recommendations came as strong, moderate, conditional, clinical principles, or expert opinions. So I'm gonna pause for a moment before we kind of start uh, discussing here. I just wanna ask you guys a poll question. So I don't know if we've done this before, and please interrupt me if this isn't working, but you should all be seeing a poll right now. And the question I'd like to start off with is, if you had access to all of the surgical treatment options out there, knowing that some of them are not necessarily available right now where you work, but what would be your generally preferred treatment for BPH? And we'll leave that up there for a minute to see if um, we can kind of see where our starting point is. And so if you need, if you can't see the poll, just um, double click on a thumbnail. 
and our moderator, Michelle, is going to give us a general update of what the results are. Let's do it in about 30 seconds. All right, so it looks like Terp is the winner here. So about so about 55% or, or and, that, and this is about what's done nationally, but the vast majority of people kind of feel more comfortable or seem that they're starting off with with a Terp as their as their workhorse here, which which makes sense. Laser enucleation about 28%. Looks like your prostatic urethral lift 13%, and microwave really not popular. So. So interesting. So we'll have this poll again at the end and uh, please share the results with us. All right, moving on. So if you look at the summary of uh, surgical treatment evidence, so there are 10 surgical options in all discussed in the um, updated AUA guidelines. And for the majority of them, the evidence is, is B or C. So, you know, th this is um, something that we very much would like to do more research on. Um, the ones that have been around longer, TERP, um, um, PVP, HOLA, generally have a, a more moderate degree of evidence, so moderate recommendations, whereas some of the newer um, treatments, particularly water vapor ablation, aquablation, those are more conditional recommendations. So let's go through on um, a case-by-case. Case. So first off, who needs surgery? So surgical indications um, are very important to know. These are often good boards questions. So patients who you can talk about surgery or offer surgery for, one, desire to stop daily medications or failure of medical therapy, um, acute or chronic renal ins insufficiency from BPH, urinary retention, recurrent urinary tract infections, recurrent bladder stones, or gross hematuria. What should be the evaluation to start off with? So every single person that you're gonna be seeing for a possible surgery for BPH should get a medical history, an AUA symptom index, and a UA. And this is high yield, you know, board type stuff. If you're just seeing a patient and you're evaluating them, a PVR is optional. And one thing that's important to recognize about a PVR, there is no magic number at which point somebody needs surgery because of an elevated PVR. And there's no universally accepted definition of what a, a clinically significant elevated PVR is. A Euroflow is optional. We know that a Qmax of less than 10 mLs per second has a specificity of 70% for bladder outlet obstruction and pressure flow studies are optional as well. I think it's common in a lot of clinics to just get these routinely, but pay attention to the fact that all of these also cost money. So if it's not necessarily gonna change your recommendations or your care, consider the cost of these. Something that's been new in the recent guidelines is this statement that clinicians should consider assessment of prostate size and shape prior to surgical intervention. And you can do this with either an abdominal or transrectal ultrasound, a cystoscopy, or a lot of these patients will have pre-existing cross-sectional imaging, be it a CT done for abdominal pain or MRI for an elevated PSA. And you should take all of these into consideration. And if you don't have any of this, you should get some sort of um, assessment of size and shape before um, talking about surgery. And it's important to recognize, and this was called out in the, in the guidelines, that a DRE alone is insufficient and unreliable in estimating prostate size. Something that I think is just a really interesting topic, but as we understand BPH more and as we pay attention more to the size and the shape and the growth patterns, we recognize that all people's, not all people's prostates are the same. And at some point it is very reasonable to expect that we might be able to kind of phenotype patients with BPH. Patients with a ball valving median lobe, for example, may be different and may have a, a different symptom, um, degree of symptoms than patients who have just a diffusely enlarged, you know, uh, lateral lobe hypertrophy. Here's a cystoscopy on a patient I did in the office not too long ago, and you can see just on retroflexion here, there is a giant ball valving median lobe. And this is gonna be a patient that I know is gonna, is gonna respond differently than someone with maybe a 200 gram prostate that's just diffusely enlarged. Um, so I think there are more and more reasons to pay attention to the size and the shape before we just start talking about surgery because some people probably respond differently. If you are gonna be talking about surgery with your patient, and this is now at the point where you're, you've decided you're gonna intervene, at this point, you should perform a post-void residual. Again, it's not, a, not necessarily gonna be the, the critical thing in deciding when to operate, but as a measure of response to the surgery and a, as a measure of kind of long-term planning, a, a preoperative PVR is important. You should also consider a Euroflow. Important and also pointed out by the guidelines that a Euroflow should, should really be ideally 150 cc's of minimal voided volume. And you have to tell your patients not to valsalva void when you're collecting this. 
Pressure flow studies, again, op optional. You can consider it if diagnostic uncertainty um, is present. And these would be patients who you might be concerned have a hypocontractile uh, uh, bladder or patients where you don't know if they maybe have an atonic bladder because their PVR is you know, very, very, very high and they're insensate of it. So if you're not sure, you can consider pressure flow studies. Some things that I think people rush to operate for or, or um, intuitively think deserve surgery would be patients with a, a large bladder diverticulum, or again, patients with that asymptomatic ele elevated PVR. The guidelines point out that these are actually not reasons alone that require surgery. So don't necessarily rush to the OR if you just see these, but the patient is asymptomatic. Um, I'd like to call your attention to an AUA white paper from 2016. And uh, what this, this was an AUA white, pa white paper uh, led by Dr. Stoffel, and it, it basically goes through um, categorizing chronic urinary retention in non-neurogenic patients. And what they did was basically categorize patients as high risk or low risk. So what would we consider high risk chronic urinary retention? These are patients who have urinary retention plus hydroureter, hydronephrosis, renal insufficiency, recurrent UTIs, episodes of urosepsis, or possibly you know, urinary incontinence. I, I would honestly consider any degree of overflow incontinence incontinence worrisome, but in this case, it was uh, urinary incontinence with, with ulcerations or perineal skin changes. So those are gonna be the patients you really worry about where an elevated PVR plus one of these other things should probably make you consider surgery. And if you look at the guidelines, again, this is from an AOA white paper in 2016, which I would recommend everybody take a look at. Um, if, you have, if you have a patient, you've done their you know, history and physical exam and they are not high risk and they are not symptomatic, then surveillance is a re reasonable option here. And that would be a periodic assessment with an H&P quality of life questionnaire and, and upper tract imaging is warranted. So going back to the surgery guidelines. So again, now we're at the point with our patient where the patient has indicated that they want surgery. Um, the AUA guidelines have this nice chart. Um, the way it's organized, I think is, is meaningful. And it's basically small prostates, average size prostates and large prostates. And we'll kind of go through it um, over the next series of slides in this way as well. So I always like to think of prostates like, a, like an orange with basically the, uh, the pulp or the fruit being the transition zone adenoma and the peel being the uh, peripheral zone. And I think this is a really nice way to counsel patients. Um, when you're talking about small prostates, there's no size given necessarily in the, in the AUA guidelines, but we usually use maybe 30 to 40 grams as a small prostate. And you can see most things are appropriate uh, TUIP, microwave, water vapor, Eurolift, all these things. Only thing you wouldn't really be offering for a patient with a small prostate is a simple prostatectomy. Similarly, for an average size prostate, and for the, for the purpose of a discussion, we'll say 30 to 80 grams, an average size prostate, most things are gonna be reasonable, at least to discuss. Again, simple prostatectomy, probably not gonna wanna do that for an average size prostate. And a TUIP, just an incision of the prostate, not necessarily the best treatment option here. And then large prostates, which, which that's really where my personal interest is, um, that's where you're gonna wanna have a discussion about either a simple prostatectomy or, or an enucleation. And with the large prostates in particular, I would say this is something that we're probably gonna have more and more, we're gonna see more and more commonly as our, age, as our population ages and as we kind of defer surgery from more and more primary medical therapy, there is reason to believe that our patients are gonna present for surgery with kind of advanced stage BPH or larger BPH than we saw 20, 30 years ago. So let's start by talking about a, a TUIP. This is just an incision of the prostate. So AUA guidelines went through this and they say this is an option for men with prostates less than 30 grams. So really quite small prostates. Oftentimes these are prostates that are, you know, very fibrous or have, you know, a considerable amount of, of kind of just that, that tight bladder neck um, look to it. Um, you can make a nice incision using a variety of techniques. You can use, you know, a button electrode. You can use a laser. You can use a, uh, a knife or a blade. These are, um, these are very effective procedures in well-selected patients. And one thing you can counsel your patients about is that there is some potential advantage from a sexual per perspective in the sense that um, a TUIP is, has a lesser likelihood of causing retrograde ejaculation than a, than a formal TURP. It's about 18% reported versus 65% reported in the guidelines. But again, only really appropriate for men with small prostates. Microwave. So if we had done this lecture 
probably 10, 20 years, 10, 15 years ago, a microwave would have been kind of the latest, greatest, and, and um, there would have been a lot of interest in this. But we've learned over time that TUMT, or microwave therapy, while it's still in the guidelines as, as a consideration, um, patients actually should be informed of a higher likelihood of surgical retreatment compared to TURP. And the guidelines quote about 10% risk of retreatment versus 2.3% um, with, a, with a TURP. And this is not in the guidelines per se, but I would say as evidenced by the, by the poll we put out at the beginning, uh, microwave has generally fallen out of favor. It's been replaced with kind of some newer alternative minimally invasive surgical treatments, which uh, we'll talk about in a moment. For context and just for kind of general awareness, what a microwave um, treatment was, was basically a placement of a warming catheter with the prostate that, that kind of had some cooling mechanisms so that the heat was transmitted um, to the prostate while protecting the surrounding critical structures. Not really used very commonly anymore. Similarly, a former minimally invasive surgical treatment at TUNA, which was a needle ablation, um, still offered somewhere, but it actually is not recommended um, for the treatment of LUTs attributed to BPH by the, by the guidelines anymore. And this came out of um, inconsistent results and um, evidence that the prostates weren't really shrinking as much as they were just scarring. Um, and, and despite, you know, the many numbers of tunas that have been performed, there's just generally poor data showing that this is an effective treatment. So this is no longer recommended. So let's talk about the newer MIST therapies, and you'll hear that term more and more, MIST, minimally invasive surgical treatment. And these are kind of non-traditional, non-traditionally non surgical treatment options, oftentimes that you can do potentially in the office or maybe under just some light sedation. They're meant to be kind of rapid um, and, and safe alternatives to, uh, to a TERP. So prostatic urethral lift, this has been around for, I think since about 2012, 2013, so about eight years now. Um, the data as it stands currently is that um, you may consider a prostatic urethral lift for prostates less than 80 grams and verified absence of a middle lobe. And this is a very important thing. This is something that you probably see on a board question at some point in your life. But what a urolift is, is basically placement of these tension sutures in the lateral lobe tissue of the prostate such that you're able to pull open um, and pull open the prostate and create a, a bigger channel to void through. Um, the guidelines say that patients should be informed that symptom reduction and flow rate improvement is less significant compared to TERP. So it's right there in the guidelines. This is not going to be a TERP replacement per se. Um, they also point out that evidence of efficacy and retreatment is poorly defined. So we do need longer term studies. I'll go through one of the major ones in the next slide here. And this is a treatment that unique to, to prostatic urethral lift may be offered to eligible patients who are concerned with erectile and ejaculatory function. So that's a very critical point that I would like to point out that a urolift is something that um, is unlikely to cause sexual side effects. The main study that we have looking at Eurolift is a study called the LIFT study. This was initially published in the Journal of Urology in 2013. Um, it was an RCT of Eurolifts versus sham controls where uh, patients actually had a cystoscopy and like uh, um, some trigger noises sound that, that made it, uh, that simulated placement of the clips. Eligibility were uh, IPSS greater than 13, a slow flow less than 12 mLs per second, and prostate sizes 30 to 80 grams, so pay attention to that number. 140 patients ended up getting um, treatment, 66 were randomized to sham, and again, median lobes were excluded. That's probably the most important thing to know about Eurolifts here. At baseline, patients had an IPSS score at 22, and at one year, it, it went down by about half. Quality of life scores improved from 4.6 out of 6 to 2.2. QMAX improvement, a little less um, exciting, about 8.9 mLs per second to 12. And at one year, only 5% of the patients um, were retreated. These have recent, these numbers and the same study population has be recently been updated for five-year data. Now it doesn't have every single patient that was enrolled, but the patients who um, are still responding at five years report that their IPSS it's still better than it was at baseline, although it's, it's, it's progressing with time, so about 14.5. Quality of life has gotten a little bit worse, 2.5, and QMAX slowed down a little bit, mean 11 mLs per second. Notably, and I think this is an important number, about 14% of patients have had retreatment in one way, shape, or form just for adenoma. So this does not take into account the patients who necessarily had retreatment for um, a clip that migrated into the bladder or formed calcification on it. Um, notably, no cases of de novo sexual dysfunction, ejaculatory, or erectile. 
Um, but the guidelines factor this in, and I think this is an important statement, when factoring in clip removal, as well as the initiation of new BPH medications, um, at five years, about a third of the patients experience some degree of unsatisfactory BPH-specific results. And so this is the reason that there's kind of that caution um, element to the, to the guideline recommendation that patients really do need to be counseled, but this um, is, is not necessarily the same treatment as a TERP. What's the other minimally invasive surgical treatment? So, so water, vapor, water vapor thermal therapy. So you'll hear this um, uh, called Resume. And similarly, this is something that the guidelines recommend may be offered for prostates less than 80 grams. Patients should be informed, again, that the evidence of efficacy, including longer-term retreatment rates, remains limited. So this has not been around long enough for us to know if it stands the test of time. And this may be offered to eligible patients who desire preservation of erectile and ejaculatory function, just like Urolift. So, so what is Resume, so, or what is water vapor thermal therapy? Well, basically, um, you insert a um, cystoscope through the urethra, you target the BPH, and you in insert a needle. And the needle basically ins in inserts into the prostate tissue, and you can deploy a nine-second treatment of high-pressured steam that creates areas of cavitary necrosis within the prostate. Important to know that these sorts of patients will generally have like some degree of, of LUTs, some degree of worsening of their symptoms. I'll call it a prostatitis oftentimes for several weeks after the procedure as a result of kind of the tissue remodeling that's going on. And it, you wouldn't necessarily expect these patients to report substantial improvement immediately after this procedure. This is going to take a little while for the tissue to resorb and for the urethra to open up here. Um, what data do we have? So the main study, this was published in 2016, very similar to the Eurolift study. There was an RCT comparing resume to sham control, um, similar degree of eligibility criteria. And again, it was a two to one um, uh, study where 136 patients ended up um, being treated with uh, resume um, and 61 with sham. Nearly the same baseline IPSS score. Um, and you can see results at one year and, and up to four years pretty much been maintained with a pretty substantial improvement in the degree of IPSS score improvement. Quality of life went from 4.4 to around two or a shade higher at four years. Qmax a little bit higher than it was in the Eurolift study. So um, initially it was 9.9 mLs per second and somewhere between 13 and 15 maintained for four years. Lesser degree of adenoma retreatment here than in the Eurolift population. So at four years, 4% 4 of patients have required um, retreatment. Uh, again, this is just based on, on that initial study from um, 2016. Um, the guidelines do a really good job summarizing kind of the, the considerations for these missed therapies. And, and I like this statement. Traditionally, the primary goal of treatment has been to alleviate bothersome LUTs that result from bladder outlet obstruction. So this is that hammer nail TERP approach. While a mist may not alleviate symptoms to the same degree or durability as more invasive surgical options, a more favorable risk profile and reduced anesthetic risk would make such a treatment attractive to many patients. And I think this is really important that, you know, when I'm counseling patients, I generally have this discussion with them and I say, listen, this is probably not your 20-year cure here, but for somebody who wants to have a little bit of improvement in their symptoms, maybe come off their medications, I think it's a very reasonable um, thing to discuss. And, you know, Further, if you look at the guidelines, the index patient is 45 years old. He has no history of suggesting non-BPH causes of symptoms, and LUTs may or, may, may or may not be associated with enlarged prostate, bladder outlet obstruction, or histologic BPH. And I think, you know, we often think of our patients as being these old, you know, elderly uh, men, but Leonardo DiCaprio is 45 years old. So, I mean, it may not be that every single person out there is ready for uh, a TERP or a HOLA or a simple prostatectomy. And I think this is a reasonable thing to, to consider discussing, especially with some of our younger patients. Moving on. So now we're going to get into the more traditional um, surgical treatments that um, are going to be a little bit more, uh, have, have slightly higher risk in the sense that they're going to actually remove tissue. So um, let's go back to monopolar TERP. If you think about it, a monopolar TERP really hasn't evolved much in the last 80 to 100 years. And that's really one of the reasons that this is the gold standard for the measurement of efficacy and safety, because any procedure that has been around for 80 years with limited improvements in technique and is still kind of used as much as a TERP is, really, it means it works. So this is a very good surgery. Monopolar TERPs um, 
different than bipolar terps in the sense that they, they need a hypotonic irrigation, so glycine or water. And that means that you potentially do have that risk of large amounts of hypotonic fluid absorption, which can result in TUR syndrome. Um, and it also means that you have to take this in mind when you start a monopolar TUR. If you work too long, you're potentially going to risk um, TUR syndrome. So generally, this procedure has to be done quickly, somewhere between 60 and 90 minutes. And so you're a little cautious when you're tackling a very large prostate because you, if you know you have to work for a longer period of time, um, the risk of TUR syndrome is higher. If you look at some of the published studies, TUR syndrome, not a very common um, side effect, but something that is quite morbid, happens about up to two to 3% of the time in some series. Transfusion rates, somewhere between two and 7%, and reoperation in these couple of small studies, about two to 3%, so not very high. What is TUR syndrome? Uh, this is a good boards question, but basically it's a dilutional hyponatremia, secondary to absorption of large amounts of hypotonic irrigant, and remember that this is going to manifest itself usually with some mild neurologic symptoms in the recovery room. Um, patients can sometimes get to the point where they go into a coma. Um, you can occasionally pick it up with some cardiopulmonary issues just from general fluid overload. Um, and the treatment, again, good boards question, um, slow correction of serum sodium using hypertonic saline. And the concern, and I've seen this a number of times, is overly aggressive correction can cause central pontine myelinosis. So uh, remember that. Um, biggest advent or the biggest um, innovation in, in TURs has been the, the introduction of bipolar instrumentation. So um, really the advantage is not so much in, in the loop or in the cutting mechanism, but the fact that you can work in saline irrigation, which is isotonic um, and reduces or eliminates the risk of uh, post-TUR syndrome. And as a result, this allows you to work longer. It's potentially gives you more opportunity to get good hemostasis. The clock isn't so much tick ticking from the get-go when you start a bipolar TUR. Um, and this has resulted in um, some better outcomes potentially. So there's five systematic reviews that have been performed looking at monopolar TUR versus bipolar TUR. And there's really no difference in reported efficacy rates, but bipolar TERPs are associated with a decreased risk of hyponatremia, bleeding, and catheterization time. Um, there's also a statement in the guidelines that a bipolar TUR may be preferred for large glands. Again, large gland that you're tackling and maybe going to have to work longer, you're a little less nervous about causing that post-TUR um, syndrome. So um, I think, and this is just my own personal sentiment, that one of the reasons that the, the guidelines are somewhat soft on recommending a bipolar TUR is that this is not necessarily available um, everywhere, and they didn't want to discredit the fact that a monopolar TR done safely is still a very good surgery. PVP. So um, PVP is um, photoselective photo vaporization, otherwise called um, green light. And uh, with a PVP, you're basically going to be uh, using a, a laser, a green light laser at 120 or 180 watts to create to cause um, tissue destruction or um, vaporization uh, using a laser that is basically designed to, um, to target blood. So it, it is a very hemostatic laser. Um, outcomes that have compared PVPs to TURs generally show that it's about equally efficacious um, in small to medium-sized prostates. Um, one of the guideline statements is that um, there is some data to suggest that when tackling a very large prostate, um, the benefits of a PVP may not be realized to quite the same degree as a TERP, and that's from some data showing that there is an increased probability of intraoperative conversion to, to URP when a prostate gets to 60 or 80 grams or above. Um, but this is, the, the, the best thing about a, a PVP is that there is a reported decreased risk of blood transfusion this, versus TURP. And we'll get to this later, but this is a, a treatment that um, is actually recommended by the guidelines for medically complex patients or those who are either on or temporarily holding um, anticoagulation. Bipolar vaporization. So um, this is the idea that you're not actually going to use a resection um, to, to scrape out tissue, but rather you're going to use a bipolar electrode to um, ablate um, or vaporize tissue. Um, this is something that's available in a variety of different forms. There's a vaportrode, a rollerball, or, or a button, which is seen here, which is basically this um, tissue vapor vaporizing tool that you can, you can ablate tissue by just rubbing the, um, the adenoma back and forth with this bipolar instrument. 
And this is something that the guidelines say may be offered for surgical treatment of BPH. There's really no size criteria given, although um, generally when I'm thinking about offering um, a bipolar vaporization, I would think along the lines of the same type of patient you would offer a TUR or PVP for, kind of the smaller to medium-sized glands. And this also has been reported to have comparable functional outcomes relative to TERP with a possible decrease in the risk of blood transfusion. Um, so aquablation. So aquablation is the new kid on the block. So this was something that was not in the guidelines in 2018 and just made its way into the guidelines in the last update in 2019. So what is aquablation? So this is a pretty cool technique. It's um, basically a robotic um, ultrasound guided um, tissue ablation device where, where high pressured saline um, that's, that's delivered via a water jet is basically um, used to, to just basically ablate or melt away um, prostate tissue under and in a designated area that's predefined using a transrectal ultrasound guide. So once everything is set up and this probe is positioned into the prostate and you've mapped out the prostate, this, um, this water jet actually starts working in a butterfly mechanism where it goes back and forth and using just very, very, very high pressured um, saline propulsion, it basically just, just melts the tissue in the designated zone. Um, this was introduced just recently, and so we do not have great long-term evidence for this, but, um, but the guidelines had sufficient evidence to say that it may be offered for prostates in the 30 to 80 gram range. Uh, again, you have to inform patients that long-term efficacy and retreatment rates are limited. Um, one of the advantages, potentially, of an aquablation treatment is that this, disregarding the setup time for the ultrasound and such, the actual amount of time that it takes to actually burn through the tissue, or, or not really burn, but athermally um, uh, treat the tissue, is very rapid, about four minutes to treat a standard, you know, uh, sized prostate. Um, probably the, the landmark study for um, aquablation is the WATER trial. So this was a double-blind RCT of aquablation versus TERP. Um, patients had IPSS scores greater than 11, flow rates less than 15, and this was in 30 to 80 gram size prostates. Um, you had 116 patients randomized to aquablation, 65 to TERP. And you can see at 12 months, there was very similar um, reduction in IPSS scores. This is, this is an actual reduction of 15. So this is not where they are, but this was a reduction in 15. So quite a profound improvement, um, a reduction in quality of life by 3.2 or 3.5, no difference between these two. An Im improvement in QMAX scores um, by 10.3 or 10.6 ml per second. And, and retreatment rates were low, less than 3%. Um, Notably, the aquablation patients reported a lesser likelihood of retrograde ejaculation. This was statistically um, significant. So about 6% of aquablation patients had retrograde ejaculation versus 23% in TERP. But prostate volume reduction was a little bit less in the aquablation groups, about a third versus 44% in the TERP groups. And nobody really understands why the aquablation patients potentially had less retrograde ejaculation. Some people think it's possibly because they were less aggressive um, near the apex because of the way that, um, that you can map out the zonal anatomy on the ultrasound, but perhaps sparing some of the tissue around the apex could have resulted in a lesser degree of retrograde ejaculation. Um, Important to know also there is a WATER2 study that looks at treatment of large prostates. It was not in the guidelines, so I chose not to talk about it here, but um, concerns, I, I would say generally the patients who would be a candidate for aquablation are the same types of patients who would be a candidate for TERP. Laser enucleation. So um, laser enucleation, or otherwise known as HOLEP or THULEP, if you use a, a thulene laser, um, is a prostate size independent treatment option. Um, these are different than, than TERPs in the sense that with a TERP, you're usually going to be working through the channel or through the true prostatic urethra and scraping tissue out peripherally. Whereas in an enucleation, you're going to go in, you're going to make a little cut right at the apex, and you're going to find the, the true plane between the transition zone and the peripheral zone. And that essentially allows you to, to shell out the adenoma um, such that you can treat the entirety of the BPH. Um, and it's a much more... Um, definitive procedure in that, in that sense because you are following the anatomic planes as opposed to all these other treatments we've talked about before, which really are, are channel procedures. Um, here's a little video because I think a lot of people don't necessarily get to see what an enucleation looks like, but you can see here's the, 
peripheral zone, or, and this is the adenoma up here, and you're using a laser essentially to, to basically just shell out this adenoma. Um, it's a very, very, very slick operation. It does require a high degree of training, um, but when you can offer it, it is a very versatile option because of the fact that it's size independent and you can treat small, medium, or large prostates. Um, this is a very well-studied modality. So there are um, 11 RCTs that have been conducted comparing HOLEP and TERP. Um, and in one recent paper uh, just published this uh, past year in urology, um, looking at the comparison of, of HOLEP versus TERP patients, again, these are all prostate volumes less than 100 grams. You can see that in general, it was at, at the minimum comparable as far as symptom improvement to TERP. Um, IPSS improvement at 12 months was actually favored HOLEP. Um, but generally, there's improved voiding parameters for HOLIP. So uh, HOLIP was found to have a um, favorable Qmax, favorable reduction in PVR, and less bleeding for HOLIP. And this is also makes its way into the guidelines um, because the uh, risk of postoperative hematuria or, or blood transfusion is less with, um, with these lasers because, again, the lasers are basically going to be um, more hemostatic and, and getting the vessels kind of as they uh, jut out from the capsule here. Um, I'm presenting the data for HOLEP. Thulip has uh, similar evidence, just less studies because it hasn't been around quite as long. When you're really going to see um, advantages for HOLEP, and this is a couple slides that I just felt like I, were important to include, and they do go a little bit outside of what's reported in the guidelines, but you're going to see the benefits for enucleation most apparent in patients with very large prostates. Um, there are several RCTs available comparing HOLIP to open simple prostatectomy. This is one that I think was very well done in 2002. Um, and what you can see here is that 60 patients randomized to HOLIP, 60 patients randomized to open simple, similar degrees of um, resected tissue, a lesser, de lesser decrease in hemoglobin favoring HOLIP, no transfusions in the HOLIP group versus a 13% transfusion rate in the open simple prostatectomy group lesser uh, duration of catheter, so only 30 hours on average for uh, the HOLIP patients, and the hospital say it was much less for the HOLIP patients. So this is a natural orifice, um, open, simple prostatectomy done minimally invasively, essentially. Similarly, um, over the long run, HOLIP outcomes mean were equally efficacious as um, uh, simple prostatectomy at one year and at five years. There is a similar reduction in AUA symptom score, and you can see the reduction here is profound. So about uh, patients were reporting somewhere between a two and a three for IPSS scores. No difference between open, simple, and HOLIP. Peak flow um, was similar between the two groups. PVR similar between the two groups. So, so HOLIP really is a minimally invasive simple prostatectomy. But that being said, it is a hard skill to learn. It's not necessarily available everywhere. So simple prostatectomy is still in the guidelines. Guidelines say that consideration for a simple prostatectomy should be made for open, lap, or robotic, depending on the experience in patients with large prostates. Um, the AUA didn't really provide a size for the point where a simple prostatectomy may be uh, considered. They do mention that a large prostate um, but they don't define what large is. I will point out that the EAU guidelines generally use 80 grams as their kind of marker for a large prostate. Um, you can do a simple prostatectomy either as a retropubic approach or a suprapubic approach, difference being that you're going to be cutting right onto the prostatic capsule here versus kind of opening the bladder in a suprapubic approach. Um, and you can do this laparoscopically. There is evidence to suggest that this is um, uh, a very reasonable surgical choice. Um, it's also going to be a complex surgery. Um, lap prostate surgery is not something that uh, necessarily everybody can offer. The potential advantages are going to be a pneumoperitoneum, so that can potentially decrease the likelihood of intraoperative bleeding, which is known to be a, a major problem with simple prostatectomy. You can get smaller incisions, um, but, but the comp surgical complexity here is significant. And then more recently, um, as you know, familiarity and experience with robotics has grown, uh, robotic simple prostatectomy is something that is commonly offered now. Again, the potential advantages here are mainly in the pneumoperitoneum for decreased likelihood of bleeding, as well as in this case, specifically familiarity with robotic prostatectomy as a cancer op operation um, where it's maybe a translatable skill set. Um, there are concerns potentially with increased complexity, time, and cost. 
Um, I'm going to kind of wrap up here for the next couple slides. Prostate artery embolization. So prostate artery embolization is, is controversial to say the least. So as of the guidelines last year, this was the guidelines came out and said prostate artery embolization or PAE was not recommended outside the context of a clinical trial. And they said specifically that there was sparse literature with low quality stu studies available and no sham studies. And if you recall, this, the sham study was really what got um, approval for Eurolift and Resume. So I am very curious in the next update what happens because actually in this month's European Urology, there is a sham trial that was reported from Portugal. And I think this is a worthy um, publication for, for people to look into. It's certainly, if you have a journal club coming up, it might be something worth um, discussing. But this was an RCT where they took 80 patients, 40 PAE and 40 sham. And again, this is not in the guidelines right now. These were patients with an IPSS score greater than 19. Um, so this was a higher degree of bother than the patients that you've seen in the Eurolift or the Resume trials. Um, and while their inclusion criteria were prostates greater than 40 grams, if you actually look at what they recruited, the mean volume was 80 grams. So these are very large prostates. Patients were um, basically randomized to either sham or prostate artery embolization. And then at six months, were allowed to, if they were in the sham group, were allowed to go ahead with the PAE. And what you see here is there was definitely favorable improvement in the PAE group relative to sham for that first six month period. And at six months, there was a subsequent improvement in the sham patients who went on to get PAE. So I do think this will challenge the AUA uh, guideline committee a little bit. I don't know what they're going to say, but um, just wanted to make everybody aware that there will be some emerging data um, in this area. And, and this is something that I think practically we're all going to see a little bit more of. So we probably should be aware of some of the evidence um, on the on the downside, you know, this is a procedure that urologists will have to share with their interventional radiologists to some degree if they do choose to do this. Um, and additionally, there are concerns about the potential for radiation exposure. This is this is a complex procedure that requires quite a bit um, of uh, ionizing radiation to, potentially to the pelvis. Last statement from the guidelines: so medically complicated patients. So, kind of mentioned this before, but whole lip. PVP and Thulip, these are the ones that are going to be favored in patients on anticoagulation at a high risk of bleeding. They're the ones that have the data to support lesser bleeding rates than TERP and as a result should be considered. Again, summary of the surgical evidence, which we kind of talked through already. So I'd like to kind of wrap up here and kind of just put that poll out for everybody one more time, um, having, having gone through the overview. So if everyone could take a minute and kind of re-answer uh, that poll question. I'm just curious where, where things end up here. So I'll leave that up for a moment and then I'm happy to take any questions. So uh, let's see, Michelle, if you have um, sufficient answers, why don't you put the poll results up and then we can move on to the question and answer part. Well, I'll tell you what, while we're getting that, while we're getting that, go that going, um, does anybody have any questions? I'll, I'll look to Carissa, maybe you can moderate or throw out any questions that have come up. I, I really want to thank everybody in advance for, you know, kind of signing in and, and participating. And, and really, I know it's a challenging time for everyone. So I wish you guys all, you know, health and safety for you and your loved ones. And, and I want to thank you all for everything that you're doing right now um, as we band together to, to battle COVID. Uh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Borowski, for that, for that great talk. Um, really covered a lot of ground in an hour and got some great questions coming in. So I'll just get started. A um, couple questions about evaluating bladder function before proceeding with BPH treatments. Um, do you offer treatment for patients who you're concerned about a, a contractile bladders? Um, how do you work up you know, the bladder and does that vary based on the type of treatment that you have in mind? So it's, it's a really good question. I think it's a common question that there's a lot of um, different opinions about how to manage. I'll tell you what I do in these situations. So generally, if I'm going to take somebody to surgery for um, 
if I'm if I'm considering sur surgery for someone, I generally want to cysto them myself. I want to make sure that they don't have a urethral stricture, and I really want to see what that prostate anatomy looks like, um, because I want to know is it a median lobe dominant procedure? Are they you know potentially a candidate for urolift? Is it mostly lateral lobes? And then I want to know what the bladder looks like. But probably the main reason I like to do the cysto beforehand is because it ensures me that I, almost every patient will have a, a sufficiently full bladder for me to do a uroflow immediately afterwards. And I think we commonly, commonly, commonly face these situations where our patients are coming in for surgical discussions and you ask them to do a flow, but they're not really ready to void, but they do one anyways. And, and you get maybe 80 cc's or 120 cc's of voided volume. It's very hard to know what to make of that. So sometimes I like the cysto just to know if they have a good flow. And basically, if they're able to, to void on their own to any degree, that's enough for me to know, you know that, that I'm probably going to end up offering that patient surgery. I may counsel them a little bit, depending if I see a lot of trabeculations or diverticuli in the bladder, that you know, their end outcome or the end improvement may not be quite as dramatic. But I don't necessarily think I need urodynamics in that situation um, to distinguish whether or not they're a surgical candidate. The only patients I would really necessarily send for pressure flow are the ones who are not voiding at all. They're in complete retention and they look like they have a, just a terrible bladder or they have some, some neurologic or other reason, you know, whether it's a history of a spinal cord injury or um, advanced, advanced diabetes, where I, I would want to know a little bit more um, whether, or not, whether or not surgery is going to work. Sounds good. Great. Thank you. A um, couple questions about one of the, the slides that you showed earlier with the oranges on it and if you have actual number cutoffs for what you define as small, medium, and large lobes. So, so for me, I will kind of throw out the caveat that I, I generally prefer hole-up. So I think when you know how to do a hole-up, what's really nice about that is because it's a size-independent treatment, it really doesn't matter um, kind of what the size prostate is. I think if you don't know how to do holop and you're kind of questioning, should I do like a TERP or a simple prostatectomy, to a large degree, you have to you know, rely on your familiarity and your own skill set with the procedure. If you know that you are a, you're good at a TERP, you're good at a green light, and you can get through a large amount of tissue efficiently and safely, then I would maybe say you can, you can you know, do anything up to 60 grams pretty, pretty competently and get a really good outcome. It's probably where you get that 80 gram or above, and I, and I agree that the EAU guideline, you know, position on 80 grams, it really probably is the area where I would move towards something more definitive. And depending if the patient's, you know, a surgical candidate, that's where I would really have that discussion. If it's a very old, frail person, I'm probably not going to be super excited to do um, a simple prostatectomy on that patient. So to some degree, also the the patient's general health is going to factor in more than the size of the prostate. But 80, 60, 80 grams is where I start, you know, considering the place where, where a TERP or a green light probably is not the best thing. Mm -hmm. That's um, on the upper, upper limit. Um, there's a question about the advantage of your lift over resume if the size indications are about the same and you can't deal with the median lobe on a Euro lift. So yeah, so Eurolift, I know there are a couple of recent studies that have been looked at, you know, as whether or not you can treat a Eurolift with a median lobe. And I think to some degree, you're basically looking at pulling the median lobe off to one side. The AUA guidelines did review these um, studies for the purpose of, of this and didn't feel like the study quality was enough to recommend it in the setting of a median lobe. And, and I certainly wouldn't. I don't think there's any compelling data really to, to say that it's an option for men with a median lobe. As far as the size, you know, both studies were, were done in a very similar population of men with the size of 30 to 80 grams. My, again, got, going off the guidelines, my own, my own preference is I think these treatments work much better for men with smaller prostates. So for me, it's generally gonna be a 30 to 50 gram prostate or less where I would offer one of those treatments. That is not a guideline statement though. All right, and uh, since you're the since you're the hole up guy, can you talk us through some of the the nuances between uh, holmium versus thulip laser? There's a question about green lip as well. Yeah, so holmium and thulium are the ones that have been most you know well studied. 
But I would also like to point out that, you know, enucleation as a concept is something that is, is evolving. So there are green light laser enucleation um, papers out there. There are, there's quite a bit about bipolar enucleation using basically a, like a, a button electrode or even a bipolar loop to basically just find that plane. And there's, there's really no reason that you can't do that surgery um, with any number of different types of energy, as long as you can find that capsular plane and basically are able to safely remove the tissue. So if you can find the capsular plane, dissect out the adenoma and push it into the bladder and get the tissue out, then, then you can really use any number of, of techniques. Um, as far, what was the other part of the question as far as what? Um, um, there's also the green lip laser. Um, yeah, okay, so my, my thoughts on this are generally that holmium lasers are, pretty ubiquitous in urology. I mean, it, for almost any hospital, it's going to have a holmium laser just for the fact that it's, it's what we use to treat stones. Um, I also like the fact that a holmium laser is a pulsed laser, and I don't remember if you kind of go back to that little video that I was showing you before. Um, the fact that it has this acoustic pulse does a really good job in, in, in showing you the plane. So if you see here, I'm actually not burning the tissue, but I'm actually using just the, the pulse of the laser to dissect the plane for me. Whereas a thulium or a green light laser, those are gonna be kind of contact lasers where you actually have to make contact with the tissue and as a result, you can cut through the tissue and get lost. Um, so, so you basically can, can lose sight of the capsule, which you, hear, which you see here so nicely because you're just, you're just cutting through. I like to think of those as like lightsabers as opposed to, uh, to what a homium laser is. Makes sense, sounds good. Um, and then in terms of aqua ablation, have you had experience with post-operative bleeding? Um, have you ever had to do a TERP after aqua ablation and, and how does that go? So I'll, I'll just start out by saying that I have not really personally done aqua ablations. Um, I do know the data and, and I would say that there's um, emerging evidence to suggest that there is a modification of the aquablation where you would use the robotic guidance to basically um, treat the tissue but then go in at the end with a, um, uh, with a standard uh, resectoscope and, and try to cauterize any potential bleeders, particularly at the bladder neck. Um, I do think that's probably gonna be the future for aquablation, particularly in the larger patients or those at increased risk of bleeding. Um, but that's so new, it's still just in the early evolution stages. So um, I, I personally haven't had experience of having to take people back, but, but something that's evolving. And I think the guidelines are a good job kind of saying that when you're counseling someone about aquablation, it's important to tell the patient that, hey, listen, this is a new treatment. We don't know the efficacy of retreatment or, or long-term data here. Um, and how do you, this is a question that's uh, probably relevant for a lot of trainees. We get called about this a lot, but how do you follow or manage an, asymm an asymptomatic patient with a PVR of 350 or around that? Around yeah. that? So I, I, that's why I put in the, the white paper, which I think is a really excellent white paper that doesn't get as much attention as it, as it should. But, but there's this white paper on non-neurogenic um, uh, urinary retention. And, and I think we see a lot of these patients who kind of get that incidental discovery of a PVR while in, their, in the hospital for one reason or another that's elevated. But one thing that I think is important is I, I really am not going to make too much of the patient while they're in the hospital. I think it's really important that they're, they're kind of if they were post-orthopedic surgery or, or in the hospital for a pneumonia or something else, you know, I'd like to see that patient back as an outpatient, you know, when they're kind of back to their normal state of being and see whether or not that elevated PVR really does persist. And then it's just kind of walking through this um, guideline that the AUA has, which is I'm going to categorize them. Are they high risk or not? Or are they symptomatic? It, in, the, in the majority of cases, I think patients with a high PVR end up having either some degree of symptom or something that really does make them a surgical candidate, whether it's a bladder stone or a trace of hydro or a couple of UTIs in the past year or two. But if they truly, truly, truly are asymptomatic and they're able to take care of them and they have a good social situation and they're going to be reliable, then I'm really fine following that patient. I may try a little bit of alpha blocker to see if their PVR lowers a little bit, but if they're really not bothered and they're that low risk category, I'll probably see them back every six months or so with um, an ultrasound, a BMP, and a symptom check just to make sure they're doing okay. 
Because we all know at some point, we've all seen those patients with, you know, dead bladders or atonic bladders. And we know that they started probably at some point with a PVR of 350. But I think the surveillance is really the critical component there. All right. Um, how do you uh, screen for prostate cancer? Do you look to see that there is a PSA in the patients who are within the appropriate age? Uh, age window or kind of leave it up to the PCP? What is your practice? That's a great question. So a um, couple of things on that. So PSA, so I'm always going to talk to any of these patients where I'm going to operate on them for BPH. I'm always going to take uh, part of my standard template to, to, in, in counseling them is the potential to identify prostate cancer um, on any of the tissue pathology that we remove or for them to potentially be diagnosed with prostate cancer at a later date and for the surgical treatment that we did for their BPH to complicate, you know, subsequent therapy, whether it be, you know, a higher risk of a surgical complication, a higher risk of incontinence or, or anything like that. I, I want them, I want to have that discussion on the upfront. Now, I think what's very, very hard to determine is, well, what do you make of an elevated PSA for these guys who are you know, have an 80 or a 90 gram prostate. And that's where PSA density can be really helpful. So, I mean, it, a lot of those patients, by the time they've come to see you, have had a biopsy before. And if they've had a negative biopsy and their PSA um, kinetics or their PSA density generally are in line with what you would expect for a very large prostate, I'm okay going ahead with surgery as long as I've had that discussion with them. It really starts becoming a little bit trickier if they're, if they're like naive to all that stuff. So if they've never had a biopsy, but it's a young, healthy person with, with an abnormally elevated PSA, I'm oftentimes going to recommend a biopsy because I'd much rather know before we take them to the OR whether or not they have prostate cancer. Um, the only other situation would be an, an MRI. So uh, this happens to me frequently, but I'll have maybe a 70-year-old person with a 100-gram prostate and a PSA of, of you know, seven or something like that. And I do think there is potentially a role for MRI in those cases. You know, it's not something that's been studied and they can't really give you any data um, uh, to, to, to tell you whether or not that's safe. But I think using MRI as a surveillance strategy to determine whether or not that person needs a biopsy or whether or not it's just, you know, pyrads one or two and it's all benign tissue, I think that can be a useful part of this. Mm -hmm. One other thing I'd say is post-operative PSA is important something we didn't really talk about, but if, but what, what I think is really interesting about whole lips is the post-operative PSA almost always ends up around one. And when it doesn't, it always makes you think, well, is there something in the peripheral zone that's left behind that still has, you know, prostate cancer to it? Whereas a lot of these other surgical retreatments, the PSA reduction is a lot more variable depending on how much tissue you started with, how much you removed, and whether or not there's any underlying inflammation. But I definitely think you should consider monitoring PSA in these patients. Very interesting. Um, I think we've got time for one more question. Um, and just so everybody knows, we're going to try to address some of the questions in our Q&A section on the, on the website later on. Um, but in, in how do you counsel your patients about the sexual side effects? Um, you know, TERP versus PVP, HOLIP. Um, you kind of mentioned your lift didn't really show any significant sexual side effects, but kind of talk us through that. So essentially, because we're so... We're, we're unable to determine who's going to have the retrograde ejaculation after a TERP or any sort of any sort of treatment that is not a missed therapy. I basically counsel everybody that it's a likely side effect that they should anticipate because if they're absolutely unwilling to experience retrograde ejaculation, then you probably shouldn't be taking them to the OR for for a, a tissue removing procedure. Um, the one exception to that, and I put this picture on here and I had a slide previously, there, I do think for these ball valving median lobes, you can just take out the median lobe and have a very, very high likelihood of preserving sexual function, be it mostly we're, we're talking about ejaculatory function. And there is a really nice paper from the Gold Journal this year by uh, Dr. Kaplan from New York that has outcomes over like a five or 10 year period with like over 300 plus patients that have been treated with just a median lobe only resection when they have this kind of classic phenotype. And retrograde ejaculation, outcomes are great. Retrograde ejaculation is very low. Patients generally have considerable symptom improvement. And so that's the one case where I, where I might tell someone that I'm gonna do a hole up or a TERP, but, but give them a high likelihood of preserving ejaculation. 
If that's the last question, I do want to point out that um, it would be great and we would all really appreciate it if you could go to the, uh, the hosting website, the UCSF COVID website, and uh, there you'll find a survey. We're really looking for feedback for everyone, including uh, myself and any of the lectures that have been uh, done previously. But, but if you could take a minute and go to the website and fill out the survey, we would really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.